Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal, and they're not meant to be used as treatment recommendations for patients. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Travis Decker coming from the United States Air Force today, and I'm joined today by a true friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Michael O'Brien. He's a renowned faculty member at Tulane University, where he specializes in shoulder and elbow and has been an amazing mentor and advocate for arthroscopy the journal, and Anna. He's led multiple committees along with serving as program chair for specialty day and is a future annual meeting chair out in DC. So a big shout out to him as he'll be putting together a great program. In in addition to that, he's been a teacher of multiple courses and just watching him uh, as he works alongside, especially some of our junior military members has been, it's been really astonishing and I've learned quite a bit. He's one of the most affable and approachable young faculty superstars through Anna and he continues to push uh, our association to the next level. Truly is a privilege to host a, this podcast this week, especially pre-holiday with Dr. O'Brien. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Travis. That is a very kind introduction. And I'm glad this will be a podcast because I'm blushing a little bit, man. But uh, <laughs> Travis and I have been friends for years, and this is really an honor. So I appreciate it. And speaking of military initiatives, um, you know, we just had the the Mass Educational Summit out in Colorado earlier this month, and we got to attend uh, a football game, which was <laughs> did not end the way Travis wanted it to. Right. But uh, it was a great game between Air Force and Army, and it was just an incredible opportunity to spend time with some of our um, military colleagues. And then uh, I was invited back out by you and Kelly Kilcoin and Dr. Tintel to the SOMOS annual meeting, which was just amazing. And so... I want to put in a plug for you because I'm I'm wearing my Somos vest today for Scott Tintel, and all of us can become friends of Somos for a mere two hundred dollars a year. And so all of the civilian orthopedic surgeons can help represent and support our military colleagues by becoming a friend of Somos, which is an amazing organization. Well, thank thanks for that, Dr. Brian. I mean, Anna has been a huge supporter of SOMOS throughout the years. And I think the organization as a whole has been extremely appreciative for all the support that we've received. And we're lucky to have Dr. Tokish as the incoming president for this year's meeting. And there's been no better advocate for military orthopedics than our founding fathers for SOMOS and the organization. And just glad to have him at the, at the helm this year. So Totally agree. And I think it's definitely a, a mutually beneficial relationship for all of us. Today, we're going to be discussing your paper, which is a Sentinel article. It's some time ago now with co-authors to include doctors Michael McCabe, Larry Field, Buddy Savoie. I mean, a lot of giants in the field of shoulder arthroscopy. This is a paper that I've been secondarily discussed through other papers like I did with Dr. Dickens, where he was evaluating open bank cart and is kind of looking at failure rates. And everybody mentions this paper, and that this is your paper that was entitled Primary Versus Revision Arthroscopic Reconstruction with Remplissage for Shoulder Instability for Moderate Bone Loss, which was published in April of 2014. So, Dr. O'Brien, I love visiting these classic articles as a review of indications, updates on techniques, and change in practice patterns. You become a bit of a giant yourself as a premier educator and arthroscopist within ANA. Can you start out by telling us how you've seen the utilization of remplissage change, not only within your practice, but just generally seen within meetings over this past decade since you've last published this paper? Absolutely. Um, I think I am a, a huge advocate of remplissage because I prefer to try and do 
an arthroscopic reconstruction in these primary instability cases. And there's sometimes I think that ladder J can be overutilized, which I know we're going to get into more. Um, when this paper came out, we were looking for some way to help improve our outcomes in these uh, recurrent dislocators that at the time had what we thought, you know, the critical bone loss cutoff at the time was 25%. And so in the folks that had bone loss less than 25%, that didn't seem like they necessarily at that time were indicated for a ladder J or a bone block, but that had a very high failure rate. And so once we started learning more about remplissage, which was really popularized by Eugene Wolf, we thought this would potentially be a good way to help address the bone loss on both sides and try and fill in that hill sex defect, which as we learn more and more is really becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Like Jeff Abrams really thinks one of the main problems with failure of the arthroscopic procedure is not addressing the hill sex defect. So at that time, we were doing remplissage for any hill sacs defect that engaged at the time of surgery. And so we would try to predict that based on the preoperative imaging, but we only did it if it truly engaged or, you know, became came very, very close to it. And if it didn't engage and was a small hill sacs, then we wouldn't do it. And so one of the interesting things about that paper was we ended up having 30 patients with three and a half year follow-up. And in the primary surgery group, first time surgery, we had zero failures at three and a half years. And in the revision group, we had a 36% failure rate. So it was four out of 11 that failed. And so in our mind, that led us to believe that this was a really good indication in a primary surgery, but maybe in somebody that's already had surgery and they've already had some changes and damage to their capsular structure and their labrum, that in that setting, adding a remplissage with the revision bank cart didn't work as well for us. So it kind of gave us some pause to think in the failed arthroscopic bank cart that um, has already had a surgery performed that addition of a reduced scope bank cart and adding a remplissage might not be enough. It might not be the answer. And now my indications for that have really expanded greatly. So now if I see a hill sacs defect, I'm pretty much going to do a remplissage, especially in a primary. And so I measure the glenoid track on everybody. And I use that as kind of a data point in my algorithm, but that isn't what drives my decision. So if they have 10% glenoid bone loss and an on-track lesion with a small non-engaging hill sacs defect, if I see the hill sacs, I'm still going to do a remplissage because I believe in it that much. And I think when you look at I really like Peter McDonald's paper from JSES that came out in 2021 and the difference in his failure rate between Bankart remplissage with Bankart alone. And the recurrent instability rate was 18% versus 4% and revision surgery was six versus zero. So I think that's a very strong article too that shows we can really utilize remplissage in those patients with recurrent instability with subcritical bone loss, which to me is probably that 13 to 15% um, in the setting of any hill sacs defect. And I think that cutoff number is tricky, right? Because Tokus showed 13.5% and that's hard to measure. So in my mind, I kind of, you know, 10 to 15%, but if it's below 15%, I'll consider it. If it's above 15%, I might think about adding bone. I haven't been in practice that long. And I, even in my time, I've seen it just 
vastly more popularized and discussed in meetings and something that is universally being discussed. And kind of like you said, a, a lot of my partners are like, if you see it, we we, we treat it. And um, especially in the primary setting, we'll get into some of your thoughts, maybe on that revision setting. But I've been encouraged by a lot of the results that have looked at Remplissage and even comparing those to Latterjay. Dr. Pat Denard has is, is become a, a total rock star and, and champion for shoulder procedures and arthroscopy. And he directly compared the utilization of Remplissage versus that of Latterjay, even in contact athletes, showing excellent results with low recurrence. So have you changed your indications based off of patient specifics and like activities that they partake based off of what you would do? Or how do you tailor that in to uh, what you would do? Yeah. And so I do because most of the people that I see with recurrent instability are collision and contact athletes. And so you can lose 10 to 15 degrees of external rotation with a remplissage, which I think the average is nine to 10 degrees based on the studies. There was a meta-analysis that Grant Garagus published in 2019. And I think he showed the average external rotation loss was 10 to 13 degrees. So I have pause in an overhead athlete. Most of my patients with recurrent instability aren't throwers, you know, so I see down here, some active duty military folks, but mostly they're football players, soccer players, basketball players. So I'm not worried about them losing 10 degrees of external rotation. So if I see it, I do it, you know, and I think we're going to talk later about the, the order of the steps, but if they've got, if I'm there for a soft tissue Bangard procedure and I wasn't expecting to do a remplissage, but they have a small Hillsatics defect, I'm going to add it in because I do think it addresses the bone loss in the back. It helps recenter the humeral head, it pulls the humeral head back off your repair a little bit. And we know that the, the data speaks for itself. Uh, Pat Denard even had a recent commentary in arthroscopy, commentary on a recent article where he suggested, should we be doing remplissage on every instability surgery? And he kind of described like, is remplissage the hammer? So now that we hold the hammer, do we hit every nail, every hill sacks with a remplissage? And he did caution that we're not really sure what the 10 and 15 year outcomes of that might be in terms of over tightening them and leading to some capsulorophy arthropathy. So I think it's good to be thoughtful about that. But uh, that's a long answer to your question. I think if if they're a collision or contact athlete and they're not a thrower, I'm going to do it. If they're a thrower, then I'm going to really evaluate that glenoid track and see if it's a near track lesion. And I've done a couple where I just put my remplissage anchor more lateral, so closer to the rotator cuff insertion to try not to over tighten them too much. So to still give them a little bit of stability, but not over tighten them too much. On the contrary, I've had some college defensive linemen that had no hill sacks, and I even created a small hill sacks just to add a remplissage. But same thing, we're kind of burying down just a little bit of that bone, very lateral by the cuff insertion, and adding a remplissage because I know that they're a D1 football player. Yeah, I, I, I have one of my partners that, that had talked about creation of a hill sacks lesion to be able to tighten them and you're bringing up an interesting point about the effect and the biomechanical effect of where you place those anchors in your hill sacks and what is it a filler 
that we're preventing that hill sacs from re-engaging or is it a truly a tightening almost a capsulography to bring them back that's a I haven't actually considered that before, but that's a very interesting way to, to think about it, even to lateralize where you're filling it to be able to pull them back as a benefit still of the remplissage and maybe not over tightening them and tailoring the tightening of your remplissage. And, you know, that, that's that's an interesting way to to, to think about it. Um, I don't have enough numbers to tease those out, you know, because the number of people that the overhead athletes that I've done that in, um, I don't have enough data to say did they lose four degrees or eight degrees? Like, I don't know, but I am thoughtful about where I put it because I usually will put the one or two anchors right in the central, you know, cavity of the defect. Mm -hmm. And if I'm worried about over tightening them, I put it a little more lateral. Mm -hmm. um, I think it does both. I think it tightens the posterior capsule. And then by tenodesing the infraspinatus, I think you're getting some active pull on the humerus posterior. I try never to put it medial right along the articular cartilage because I do think that probably would cause quite a bit of stiffness. Mm -hmm. um, where do you shoot to put it? Do you try and put it in the you know, I, I have talked with a variety of our friends and mentors looking at where, where to put it. And I, Dr. Kelly is like the biggest advocate for remplissage that will get up and stop it and just say, this yeah. is what we do. Right. And I mean, he is as dogmatic as they get. And I asked him and he said, you know, he talks about more of that. We're preventing this engagement of the Hill sacks uh, as a filler effect to prevent it from jumping, to catch that anterior edge along the, the, the defect. And I, I tend to place mine a little bit more medial now, if they're super medial and they're deep, that's when we start talking about the size and whether or not we need bone to fill it and, and those things. But uh, when there are these more shallow hill sacs and they, they do engage, but they're not super medial, I tend to put them a little bit more medial. And I have seen pretty consistent with the loss of motion, specifically in that abducted external rotation. So more uh, afraid of that overhead athlete position but it gets them about that 10 to 15 degrees loss. And even with these guys jumping out of planes to say, Hey, you're, you might look a little bit funny jumping out of the plane, but you're going to be super functional and you're going to be stable coming out of the plane. And at that point, they don't care. They just want a stable shoulder that gets them in and out of the plane. And they have assurance of that. And, um, but I, just like you, definitely avoiding the true overhead athlete throwing athlete, if, if we can get away with it, and thankfully, that is not the patient that we see at a bunch in. Um, totally. I've never I've never done one in a pitcher. Mm -hmm. I've never seen one that I thought needed it in a pitcher. Because like you said, luckily, a pitcher or a volleyball player, um, they don't seem to get it that I've seen. And mm -hmm. also, I think it's because in a pitcher, they have one instability event and we're fixing them. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let them get to three or five instability events. Right. And I think the volleyball players have more hyperlaxity. So they may dislocate and tear their labrum, but they're not usually going to get as big of a hill sack defect. You know, the tricky ones too, are there's ones where you've got that medial hill sacks defect, and then there is a layer of intact cartilage between the hill sacks defect and the rotator cuff. Because oh, uh -huh. then I see those and I'm like, okay, what do we do here? Right. And so if I'm planning to do a remplissage, I will shave away the healthy cartilage and then kind of put my anchor in the middle, halfway mm -hmm. between where the original hill sacks was and in the rotator cuff. 
Um, if it's a small defect, I've left those without doing it, but it makes me nervous, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like a little ledge that they might catch on. Right. Those I think are tricky and I don't know the answer for those. I think that we're going to continue to discover more about it, especially since it's becoming so much more popularized. A better way to describe the hill sacs lesion, because you're right, those like island hill sacs are a little bit different in how you know it was a big, a big event. It almost looks like a shark bite out of the back of the humerus. And exactly. just we're wondering, well, what do I do with this? <laughs> yeah. And you hate seeing it because you're like, oh, man, like, because uh -huh. you're not really sure what to do and you're not really sure what the consequences of fixing it or leaving it alone is going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the goal we all have is the same, you know, and I think it's to fill that defect, to bring the posterior capsule to the articular cartilage edge of that hill sacs defect. And so in my mind, if you put your anchor directly in the center or a little bit medial, I think it accomplishes that goal. What I think I don't want to produce is I don't want to put my anchor right at that articular cartilage margin because I don't want to create any type of a posterior bumper of like where the posterior capsule might become a bumper that protrudes a little bit medial from the humeral head. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So I think as long as that posterior capsule is coming up and it is now reattaching at the articular cartilage margin of your hill sacs defect, I think we're accomplishing what we're trying to. Well, one of the things I did want to ask you about, you kind of spoke about it a little bit, is why do you think these failures occurred in the revision setting specifically? I, I talked about this with Dickens and his paper and tissue quality. Is it technical differences in what we were doing then versus now? Is our thought about it different? Um, and so what specifically... Yes, there's. I love case series because I think it really brought a lot of attention to remplissage, and it's one of the most cited papers that we have through arthroscopy. And then at the same time, it's like okay, there's four failures, and then we're looking at statistics, and we're like, well, this is statistically significant because it's almost thirty percent of the patients, but it was four. So, is it a practice changing model, or is it something to be aware of because it? Although statistically significant, are you finding it clinically significant even in your hands and what you have done in the revision setting? Um, because it, I, I wonder, is the is the power of the remplissage more than we've even given it credit for, uh, even in the revision setting, um, simply because the tissue quality in the back may still be just as good, despite the tissue quality in the front, maybe not being quite as good. So just want to pick your brain about why do you think that? And how is it, it has that truly changed how you approach it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mentioned earlier, lead author on that paper is Mike McCabe, who's also a military guy. So shout out to Mike. Um, there were four failures. One of, a, one of them was traumatic, which was a car accident. The other three were sporting activities so four out of 11 and so the traumatic one you know that one is hard because you could almost throw that out because it's a traumatic injury the sporting injuries i think represent true failures mm -hmm. and why did they fail i don't know but i think it's probably like uh john dickens thought that it's probably a combination of tissue quality maybe attenuation of tissue i don't recall how many instability events those four had before their first surgery. So I don't know if it was four or 14, but I 
in my mind, I attribute it to tissue quality and the tissue in the capsule being a little bit attenuated and a little stretched out. Maybe the labrum wasn't quite as good. Then and now we still fix our labrums the same way. So we do double loaded anchors with mattress sutures. So for each anchor, we're getting four passes through the labrum and the capsule. We fixed it the same way then. And we do the rumplissage very similar. You know, it, they were all getting either double or triple loaded anchors with mattress sutures. And sometimes now we'll use a double pulley technique um, like Steve Barkhart and Pat Denard have popularized. But I think it was probably tissue quality and attenuation. And so that led me to believe, you know, in a primary setting with native tissue, it's probably a little more robust. We've all seen those folks that have a paper thin posterior capsule. And even when you do the remplissage, you're like, man, I hope this holds. Um, hopefully capturing the infraspinatus tendon helps. Um, and I think that it this now, it just creates another data point. I think that you shouldn't guide your treating principles by this paper, but I think it is something to be considerate of because now in the setting of a failed arthroscopic bank card, we're going to be hypercritical of the glenoid bone loss. And if that glenoid bone loss is approaching 15% and they have failed a good arthroscopic surgery, I don't think many of us are going to do a scope bank heart with a remplissage because in that setting, we're already going to a bony augmentation procedure. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like you said, as we continue to learn and that critical and subcritical bone loss number keeps coming lower, that in a revision setting, we're probably not going to do many bank heart remplissage because of the glenoid bone loss. I think in that setting, when you see a patient back after a scope bank heart that has failed, I think you almost have to be more critical of, can I rescope this or do I just need to go to something open? And so it has to be, they have to give good tissue quality. Maybe they only had a two anchor repair. Maybe the bottom anchor was at four o'clock instead of six o'clock. And I think it's important to get an MRI and a CT scan on those, evaluate the glenoid bone loss, look at your tissue quality, look at the position of those anchors. You know, we never want to assume that, well, I can do a better job than the last surgeon because that's way too cocky. And we really got to try and figure out why did this fail? Was it truly a technical error or was it because of the bone loss and tissue quality that means a revision scope is going to have the same outcome and we need to move on to something bigger. Well, I, yeah, it, it's made me pause to, to think about anybody in the revision setting. Um, do you do any open bank carts for revision instability? I think that is still a good operation. So if you have an 18-year-old contact athlete that failed a scope bank cart one year prior and they have three or four anchors in good position, and they failed on the football field or the pitch or whatever they're playing, and they have less than 10% glenoid bone loss, that I think is a great indication for an open bank card. I do. I Maybe it's how I measure my like perfect glenoid circle at the bottom when I see that in that revision setting in the football player. For some reason, all of mine happen to be like 13.6%. So then they're getting a ladder J. So um, we agree because like that scenario I described is like a unicorn because, and for me, it's maybe one a year right. because usually their bone loss is much more significant than that because mm -hmm. they've been slipping out for a while and maybe they dislocate and they try and play through it. 
Do you always make sure that the bone loss is over 13.5%? <laughs> no, you know, I don't. I, I at, at the meeting, I know that you've, you know, Dr. Tom Hackett, who I think is one of the most thoughtful surgeons I've ever been able to, I trained under him and I saw him operate and I see him, I saw him work with patients and individuals and he is so thoughtful as a, especially when it comes to any type of revision procedure, taking these athletes through the risks and benefits and the, the consequences of them coming back out again. And so I, I was able to see a, quite a few primary ladder J's, and I know there's literature to support that now. I think we can go through and everybody can find literature to support what they want to do. Right. But, um, but in that setting, when there's a junior in college playing at the Air Force Academy, and he knows he's only got two seasons left to play football. Um, and if he was to re-dislocate six months later and miss his entire senior year, they, it becomes one of those things that they they look at me and say, just give me the procedure that you know will work and that yeah. I, I totally will minimize my risk of re-dislocating. We have to talk about the consequences and the risk of nerve damage and neuropraxia and secondary consequence of arthritis from ladder J. There's lots of downsides to it as well. Um, but those I, those players for me have tended to want to opt into an open ladder J at that point. And uh, I, I feel very lucky to have seen the between Dr. Preventure Millet and Hackett do that procedure all in very eloquent and different ways uh, that, that it is something that I, I feel confident going into the procedure with those guys, knowing that I've at least discussed the risks with them that, uh, that they'll have a, a good outcome and a good result from it. And so I, I do tend to probably hedge my my bet that way than uh, going something shy or short of that. I totally agree. And I think that's why each each decision is individualized based on your patient, their hopes and desires and what they have to get back to. Mm -hmm. And so if you're operating on a Navy SEAL with 10% glenoid bone loss, who you know is going to get deployed and disappear at some point, you're probably going to do a ladder J, which you know is going to be successful or, you know, a rugby player. So rugby players have an incredibly high failure rate. And so I talked to some of the surgeons in Australia and New Zealand, and they know they get one shot at it. So they all get a ladder J. Mm -hmm. So I think it doesn't matter that depending on the hopes and aspirations of what your patient is, what are that you individualize that. Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that was another good point that, you know, I just thought of you do a fair amount of flatter J's and have been well-trained on it. One thing that I think is important to consider is that uh, there can be a high failure rate with flatter J's, especially if people aren't comfortable with the approach. And so if somebody is only doing two ladder J's a year, they probably, in my opinion, shouldn't be doing them and send that to someone that does more because the, the worst thing that can happen with the failed bank heart remplissage is recurrent instability. The worst thing that could happen with a ladder J is an axillary nerve palsy. So the complication profile is very different. And I think it's a wonderful surgery, but people should feel comfortable performing mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that is something that you all, especially through the anal leadership and the courses that I've been and attended to, uh, have always emphasized do what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Dr. 
Dr. Bob Burks was he I had a great as you know he he can easily go off and and these very like high end uh more like uh like ethical conversations than anything talking about well what do you do specifically for the individual and does everybody need to be the best arthroscopic bone block procedure uh, or offer a, an arthroscopic bone block procedure to be a good sports surgeon these days? And I think a lot of the young surgeons are feel that pressure to be able to adapt and adjust and modify their practice to do so. But I, when I was talking with Dr. Burks, he's like, I offer three procedures. I do a primary bank cart, a bank cart ramplissage and an open ladder J. And I feel pretty confident in those three three skill sets and and in giving them what the patient needs from that. Uh, and there's a utility for what's coming and it's it's what's either being pushed by us as an organization or even through industry to adjust and adapt our surgical skill set to that. And I think there's definitely a utility for arthroscopic bone block, but uh, I think that there's uh, it really goes to at the end of the day, offer the patient what you can do best. And if your skill set suits what they need, you're going to give them a, hopefully a good result. So totally agree. And I think that is very sage advice, you know, and Bob Burks is a genius and a, a master surgeon. And if, if you are only seeing this patient once a year in your practice that comes in with instability with 25% bone loss, there is no harm in sending that patient out. Send it to a colleague that you know does open shoulder surgery or a good ladder J because that is going to be what's best for the patient. If somebody has a practice that's growing or they're fresh out and they say, wow, I'm seeing a lot of these and I don't feel comfortable with a ladder J, well, then you can learn how to do it. You know, yeah. online offerings, there's courses, Anna has special tracks for that. And then you can become comfortable at it so you can offer that to your patients. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's it's good to be humble sometimes and recognize, I know somebody nearby that does this surgery better than me. So I'm going to send you to that person and patients will remember you forever because you're doing what's best for them. One thing I did want to know about your indications is you had mentioned in your paper, you all evaluated essentially the on-track, off-track evaluation actively, arthroscopically trying to see if they engage. So are you still doing that actively during your diagnostic arthroscopy portion? I know you mentioned earlier that now if we've got a hill sax and you see it through the scope, you're looking through that anterior superior portal, you see it, we're treating it. So are you actively taking them out of the holder, seeing if they engage, or is it it's essentially go time now? We see the hill sax, it's remplissage time. That's a good question. You know, man, I hadn't really realized that I don't do that anymore because I've already made up my mind. Right. So the only time I do that is if I want to show the resident or the fellow here, look, this thing engages, or we calculated this is near track. Let's see how close it gets. On a typical case, I don't do that anymore because I've already made the decision ahead of time of what I'm going to do. Or if I wasn't planning to do a remplissage, but I see a moderate size hill sacks, I'm going to do it. That happened Tuesday, actually. It was a guy that came in over the summer. He's a college student. He decided to put surgery off until now, till winter break. And on his pre-op imaging, his hill sacs wasn't that big. And he measured on track. And I didn't repeat his MRI. And at the time of surgery, it had gotten bigger. So we added a remplissage. Mm 
-hmm. but I didn't take him out of traction to rotate him. Mm -hmm. So um, that's interesting. I hadn't even really realized that I don't do that anymore until you just asked me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's just because of, like you said, I think a lot of us now, if we see it, we're treating it and we've seen the benefits from it and with the understanding of the, I mean, I think it's a clinical benefit with limitation of external rotation because that just prevents them from getting into the position of dislocation again. So um the now one thing I always find uh, totally intriguing, and it's based off of who we've trained under, and and now these new techniques. You mentioned the double pulley technique. We've mentioned knotless technique, multiple passes with with a double, sometimes triple loaded anchors. Can you take us through a little bit of the technical aspects of when when in the, when in the sequence of the procedure you address the hill sacks? And then also kind of some of the technical pearls. Are you going up in the subacromial space and looking at everything? Uh, are you just doing it just extra capsular so you know your deep to the deltoid fascia? Kind of take us through what you do in order to address the hill sacs lesion. Yeah, the first one in terms of order of steps is good because that that has changed for me. And so the order of steps matter, as you know. And, and so for those listening, you know, if you're just starting to try remplissage, if you if you fix the hill sacks first and do your remplissage, and if you pass and tie, you tighten up the back so you can't get down to six o'clock to fix the bank cart. And if you fix the whole bank cart first, you tighten everything up, then you can't see the hill sacks anymore. So the order of steps matter. So when we published Mike McCabe's paper, we were putting in our six o'clock anchor, passing, not tying, not tying the sutures. We were then doing the whole remplissage prep it, anchor, pass, tie, and then go back and tie the six o'clock anchor and finish the bank card. Now I address the bank, the remplissage first, but don't tie. And I think Larry Field taught me this. So prep the hill sacks, put in my anchors, pass, don't tie, and then take the posterior cannula all the way out and then reinsert it back into the joint. So now my remplissage sutures are not tied, but they're outside of the cannula. That way you can still get down to six o'clock. You can even do a seven o'clock anchor if you need to. Then I fix the entire bank card. One benefit of doing that too is your assistant can actually pull on the remplissage sutures and it translates the humeral head posterior, which I think John Kelly told me. And so it actually helps make the bank card easier because you can use your remplissage sutures to pull the humeral head back to get to the bank card. So then you fix your whole bank card and then I go back and I tie my remplissage blind percutaneous at the end. I never go up in the subacromial space. I never look at it. I assume my sutures are in the right spot because when I pass those remplissage sutures, I just back the cannula out. So it's just outside of the posterior capsule and infraspinatus. So I assume they're in the right spot. I do it lateral to cubitus. So I think I'm in the safe zone of when I'm passing. And then uh, without the cannula, I just tie it down percutaneous and cut it. So my new technique is remplissage sutures, don't tie it, fix the bank card, tie the remplissage at the end. What order do you do? Kind of did it like your the description of your paper. I, uh, I really like the retentionable knotless sutures. And so with an instability case, I'll start at that six o'clock and I'll do a horizontal knotless uh, mattress and I just don't suck it down all the way. Uh, so I don't fully tension that six o'clock anchor to just shrink that capsule because then I can't see it even though only one anchor has been placed. Right, so I'll right. do the six o'clock 
And I'll utilize that and back a cannula out, just like you said, just outside of the capsule to place the anchors into the remplissage. And then I do a double pulley technique with the knotless mechanism to be able to pull those back and then use that to, just like you said, use those two limbs to be able to pull back on the head, which does significantly make that the finishing of the bank cart much uh, easier because the head's just not sitting right where you're trying to throw all your sutures and your anchors up front. So um, that's, I, I am very keen on making sure to get us at least a six o'clock, possibly seven o'clock anchor in because I do believe in that ring and ring concept to tighten it down. And, um, but that, so when I was reading your paper, that that's pretty much how I do it. Yeah. And I think uh, both techniques are incredibly effective. And it's just important to be thoughtful about the order of your steps. Mm -hmm. So you don't tighten one all the way down and then say, oh, darn, I can't get to the other spot. Um, I think one thing that's changed for me, too, is 10 years ago, I was not routinely putting an anchor in through that seven o'clock portal. And now I do on every one. Mm -hmm. So I think 10 years ago, I was still coming from anterior inferior, thinking I'm getting down low, but was probably only getting down to five o'clock. And now on every instability case, my first labral anchor is coming in through a seven o'clock portal. So you can really get it down to seven o'clock or uh, I'm sorry, six o'clock or seven o'clock if it extends around the back. Mm -hmm. the, the choice of whether, so the suture passage for my remplissage, I still either do a double or triple loaded anchor with mattresses or the double pulley. And that choice is based entirely on which company I'm using that day. Mm -hmm. So I use primarily Smith and nephew and Arthrex. And so if I'm using Smith and nephew, I like their triple loaded rotator cuff anchor. So I put one triple loaded anchor in and then do three mattresses. If I'm using Arthrex, I like their knotless labral anchor. And so then I'll put in two anchors and do the double pulley technique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so some people have asked about that. Um, I think Paul Seth, you might actually have a video on this online, um, but through your same posterior cannula, you can take, if you're going to do the double pulley technique with knotless anchors, you can make a penetration through the posterior capsule with your drill guide, place one anchor, and then just come outside of the capsule, but the drill guide is still in the cannula through the deltoid. And then you just make a second penetration through the posterior capsule to put in the second anchor. And then I know you know this because this is what you do. And then you take the repair stitch from anchor one and put it through the passing loop of suture two, anchor two. And you take the repair stitch of anchor two through the passing loop of anchor one. And then you just zip, 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 zip cinch it down. And I mean, it is so fast and easy and it looks so good mm -hmm. because you know you're getting like that broad surface area connection yeah. with the double pulley. Mm -hmm. So my choice depends on which vendor is in the room at the time of surgery. <laughs> gotcha. Well, it makes sense. You take, you, you tailor what you've got to, to make sure that you still get the job done, which is nice. And yeah. just know what the benefits of the different equipment. So. Um, and I think too, the, um, the hip, the size of the health sex lesion matters too, mm -hmm. because if you have uh, a really long hill sacks from superior to inferior, um, the double pulley might be better because mm -hmm. you're getting broader compression. If it's yeah. a smaller, medium-sized hill sacks, then um, I don't think it matters mm -hmm. as long as you get your two anchors in. There is actually a paper, I think, that's going to be presented at the Anna annual meeting where um, on the sagittal cuts, 
they look at the Hillsax lesion as like a clock face. And I think if it comes up above 10 o'clock, then they think that that's more likely to be engaging and should get a remplissage. And mm-hmm. if the Hillsax only comes up to nine o'clock, then it may not need it. But it's an interesting, it'll be another data point we have in a way to kind of evaluate those Hillsax lesions radiographically before surgery. Yeah, I think we're like we're going to continue to just we continue we emphasize glenoid bone loss, but we know it's a bipolar problem, so we're going to continue to really find interesting data points and more information about the Hillsax and its dynamics between the two of them. Uh, and so, I did want to ask you. Thank you for taking us through how you're doing your your remplissages. Uh, are you? Well, I wanted to. I don't mean to interrupt. I wanted yeah. to mention one more. Um, you know, Albert Lynn and Pat Denard just published a paper, 2023 in JSES, on remplissage for on-track lesions. And um, everybody should look that one up. So Lynn is the primary author, and it's Lynn and Denard and a bunch of other guys. It's a multi-center study where they looked at their results of remplissage, and they found that even adding remplissage for on-track lesions worked incredibly well. Mm-hmm. So that also fuels the fire for if you're a, a remplissage lover like you and me, then as long as they're not a pitcher, you can probably throw it in in anybody. Right. Exactly. Sorry to interrupt. Well, well, when you, afterwards, I have much more come to appreciate the idea that rehab is so important with these folks. Do you rehab them any differently when you just do an isolated bank cart versus adding in a remplissage? Not too much because, you know, I... My bank carts, I keep in a sling for four weeks. At week one, I let them start active assisted elevation to 90 because I'm okay with them firing their rotator cuff. And I tell them to only externally rotate to neutral. And so I have them come out of the sling two or three times a day and do some active assisted motion using the contralateral arm to help to 90 and neutral. I don't think that they're getting their arm up to 90 degrees of abduction to really stretch your remplissage capsulodesis. Um, so I don't think, maybe I should, I don't think it really changes my rehab protocol. So I do a sling for four weeks with passive motion to 90 and neutral. At week four, I get them out of their sling and let them start active motion. And then I put them in PT at week four to start some stretching and a lot of scapular retraction stuff. And then at week eight, I start strengthening. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, on average, return to play is five months. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I really tailor a bank heart rehab protocol plus or minus remplissage um, because I don't think they're going to get in an at-risk position early on in those first four weeks. Um, do you tailor yours any different? I don't, which is why I just wanted some more self-confirmation. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, right. should have had yeah. that hard on here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. No, I, um, I, I'm similar to you. I, we, I have a lot of amazing patients, but they tend to ignore everything that I ask them to do. So yeah, they, they are phenomenal. <laughs> and so I'm, pr- I'm fairly conservative for the first six weeks, but then it sounds like we kind of take off and ramp up in a similar fashion right around that week six to eight mark with uh, that four and a half to five month expect expectation of getting back to, to play. And yeah. Uh, and, it's you know, it's, you, through training and we learn that, you know, maybe not every patient is always completely honest. And Mm -hmm. one of my spine attendings in residency is 
first rule of residency was trust no one, which included his patients. So whenever you take a history form, you'd be like, yeah, they said so-and-so this happened, but it doesn't really make sense. And his answer would always be, well, that's because they're lying. They're not telling you everything. Mm-hmm. That's so, exactly right. Yeah. Partial truths are still, especially in, in, with this, can very much lead down a path of demise. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know everybody's getting ramped up for the holidays and you taking the time out of your schedule to be with us today as you're getting ready to travel and celebrate. I hope very Merry Christmas and appreciate your support of Somos, of Anna and the organization and the journal. Very much appreciate you being with us today to discuss your article. And I think definitely taught me a couple things, uh, especially with how you do it in order of operation and kind of your thoughts on how you evaluate them and just appreciate your time today. No, it's my pleasure. I think that you and I have a very similar mindset in our treatment of this. And because we're both JT Tokish disciples, that the best way to prevent recurrent instability of bone loss is early surgery. Mm-hmm. So I think we still don't treat a bank heart like an ACL, but I know we all offer surgery a lot sooner than we used to. And I think if we can catch these earlier and use techniques like a remplissage and do an arthroscopic repair, hopefully we can prevent it to getting to that 15% glenoid bone loss where a ladder J might be necessary. But I want to thank you for your dedication to this podcast series. This is a ton of work. I know you told me you just got to your relative's house and had to dump off the kids so you could run to the guest house to do this. So it, it takes a lot of time and commitment and sacrifice. So on behalf of uh, the Arthroscopy Association, I want to thank you for everyone for doing this. Um, it's been a real pleasure, and I, uh, I really appreciate and value your friendship and for having me on. Appreciate it. And, we, and so uh, thanks to the entire group with Anna. And, and so this we were able to talk about Dr. O'Brien's arthroscopy article, Primary versus Revision Arthroscopic Reconstruction with Remplissage for Shoulder Instability with Moderate Bone Loss, published in April of 2014. These articles can be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. And once again, the views in this podcast don't necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal, nor are they meant to be used as treatment recommendations for patients. And thank you all for joining us. Have a very great and very Merry Christmas and New Year and look forward to the, the next year of podcasts to come. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs>